Hi, and welcome to the Western Mass History Podcast. I'm Derek, and in this episode I'll be taking a look at a little-known event that occurred in the region during the American Revolution. In the summer of 1777, delegates from the five northeastern states gathered in Springfield for a convention to address wartime economic issues. The delegates here included some of the most prominent political leaders in New England at the time, and the meeting was one of several regional conventions that were held during the Revolution in order to supplement the work that the Continental Congress was doing in Philadelphia. By the summer of 1777, the American Revolution had been going on for more than two years. The Continental Congress had declared independence a year earlier, but by this point the future of that independence was still very much in doubt. The British still occupied New York, and George Washington spent much of his time in a cat-and-mouse game with the British, avoiding catastrophic losses but also not scoring any major victories against them. In the meantime, a massive British force was moving south into the Hudson River Valley, threatening to completely isolate New England from the rest of the country. And American diplomats had been so far unable to gain meaningful foreign assistance or recognition as an independent nation. In short, while America declared its independence in the summer of 1776, the summer of 1777 would be a crucial test on whether or not it could sustain this independence. It was in the midst of this uncertainty that 11 delegates met in Springfield in late July and early August of 1777. They represented the four New England states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, plus New York, and they included some of the most important figures in their respective states. The main question to be addressed was money, and this topic would dominate the proceedings. Aside from military and political issues, the new nation also faced economic uncertainty. Decades of British mercantilist policies had meant that there was very little hard money, meaning gold and silver coins, in their North American colonies. But the Americans needed money to fund the war. Soldiers were not typically willing to fight for no pay, and farmers, no matter how patriotic, weren't lining up to donate provisions to the army. So the Continental Congress, along with the individual state legislatures, began issuing paper money to pay the soldiers and purchase supplies. The problem with paper money is that Unless it is backed by an equivalent amount of gold or silver, its value is based entirely upon the likelihood of the government redeeming it at face value. And when that national government was constantly on the run from advancing redcoats, it didn't exactly inspire confidence in their ability to redeem their paper currency for hard money. This led to widespread inflation throughout the country. Wages and prices skyrocketed as people became less willing to accept payment in this rapidly depreciating currency. This inflation, then, led to questions about the role that the government should play in addressing this problem. One common strategy for fighting inflation was to set wage and price controls. In December 1776, seven months before the Springfield Convention, delegates from the northeastern states had met in Providence, and that convention's recommendations included state laws that limited wages and prices for essential goods and services. Massachusetts subsequently passed such a law on January 28, 1777, titled an act to prevent monopoly and oppression. In explaining the rationale for the price controls, the law began with this statement. Whereas the avaricious conduct of many persons, by daily adding to the now exorbitant price of every necessary and convenient article of life, and increasing the price of labor in general, unless a speedy and effectual stop be put thereto, will be attended with the most fatal and pernicious consequences, as it not only disheartens and disaffects the soldiers who have nobly entered into the service of their poorer part of the community, by obliging them to give unreasonable prices 
for those things that are absolutely necessary to their very existence, but will also be very injurious to the state in general. And whereas the committee lately empowered by this state to proceed to Providence in Rhode Island, and in behalf of this state, there to meet with committees from the other New England states, and among other things to confer upon measures necessary to prevent monopoly, and the high price of goods and the necessaries of life, and for regulation of vendues, have, in conjunction with the said committees, recommended that rates and prices be settled and affixed by an act of this state to the articles hereinafter enumerated. The act set maximum wages for farming labor at three shillings per day during the summer, and a proportional amount for other seasons based on usual rates. Craftsmen and other laborers were likewise limited to wages that were proportional to what they would typically earn when compared to farm workers. The act then went on to itemize price limits on a wide range of commodities. Among these were wheat, 7 shillings, 6 pence per bushel, wool, 2 shillings per pound, fresh pork well-fatted and of good quality, 4.5 pence per pound, grass-fed beef, 3 pence per pound, and stall-fed beef, 4 pence per pound, imported salt, 10 shillings per bushel, sea salt, 12 shillings per bushel, West India rum, 6 shillings, 8 pence per gallon by the hogshead, New England rum, 3 shillings, 10 pence per gallon by the hogshead, chocolate, 1 shilling, 8 pence per pound, cheese, 6 pence per pound, butter, 10 pence per pound if sold by the pound, or 9 pence per pound if sold by the firkin, potatoes, 1 shilling, 4 pence per bushel in the fall, or 2 shillings in the other seasons, men's stockings, 6 shillings per pair, men's leather shoes, 8 shillings per pair, cotton, 3 shillings per pound by the bag, and coffee, 1 shilling, 4 pence per pound. The Act included price limits for many other goods and services, often with very detailed breakdowns based on quality, origin of the products, and whether purchased in bulk or in smaller quantities. And in order to account for transportation costs, the Act allowed boards of selectmen in the various towns to adjust these rates as needed. The penalty for selling goods for more than these stated prices was a fine of 20 shillings if the items that were sold cost less than 20 shillings. For violations involving sums greater than 20 shillings, the fine was equivalent to the cost of the goods that were sold. Aside from setting these price and wage limits, the Act also empowered the state to, if deemed necessary, seize goods that were needed for the military, with the owner receiving compensation based on the prices set in the Act. Lastly, the Act prohibited hoarding. If people accumulated any of these items in greater quantities than what was reasonably necessary for their family independence, and refused to sell the excess products at the specified prices, then the Board of Selectmen could request a warrant from a Justice of the Peace. With such a warrant, a sheriff or other law enforcement officer could then seize the goods and sell them to those who are in need of them, based on the prices established in the Act. The original owner of the goods would then receive this money, minus legal fees. In general, price controls tend to be controversial, then and now, and even today economists are divided on whether or not such laws actually work. In the case of these revolutionary-era price limits, these laws were not particularly effective at curbing inflation. In some instances, people bartered rather than selling. They evidently preferred to trade one tangible good for a different tangible good, rather than accepting spurious paper currency. 
Others simply refused to sell their goods, regardless of the law against hoarding. And so the act helped to create artificial shortages. Within just a few months, Massachusetts raised these price ceilings to account for these issues, but even with this change, it was clear that the price restrictions were ineffective. So, while many of the leaders in the new country focused on issues relating to military strategy or foreign diplomacy, others looked at the less glamorous yet nonetheless urgent problems facing the nation's economy. And in many ways, these financial questions had a direct effect on the military's fighting ability. The soldiers of the Continental Army needed to be paid, fed, and equipped, and it was hard to do that with an unstable currency and rapidly increasing prices for military necessities. With these issues in mind, Massachusetts invited the other northeastern states to send delegates to a convention in Springfield during the summer of 1777. The reason for the convention, as described in its published proceedings, was for the purpose of holding a conference respecting the state of the paper currency of the said governments, of the expediency of calling in the same by taxes or otherwise, of the most effectual, expeditious, and equal method of doing it, and to consult upon the best means for preventing the depreciation and counterfeiting of the same, and also to consider what is proper to be done with the acts lately made to prevent monopoly and oppression, and to confer upon the late acts for preventing the transportation by land from one state to another of certain articles, and to consider such matters as particularly concern the immediate welfare of said states and are not repugnant to, or interfering with, the powers and authorities of the Continental Congress, and to report the results of their conference to the general courts in their respective states. To address these issues, each state sent either one, two, or three delegates to the convention. They convened in Springfield on July 30th, but many of the delegates had not yet arrived in town, so they adjourned and reconvened the following day, when all eleven were in attendance. From New Hampshire, there was Josiah Bartlett and Nathaniel Peabody. From Massachusetts was Thomas Cushing and Robert Treat Payne. From Connecticut was Roger Sherman, Samuel Huntington, and Titus Hosmer. From Rhode Island was William Bradford, Stephen Hopkins, and Paul Mumford. And from New York was John Sloss Hobart. Stephen Hopkins was elected president of the convention, and the only local figure in attendance was William Pynchon Jr., who served as the clerk. Pynchon was a Springfield resident, and he shared the same name as his great-great-great-grandfather, who had founded Springfield in 1636. At the time of the convention, he was 37 years old, and had just begun his first year as Register of Deeds for Hampshire County, a position he would hold until his death more than 30 years later. Of the 11 delegates, five had been among those who signed the Declaration of Independence a year earlier. Nearly all of them would serve in the Continental Congress at some point during the war, and most of them would go on to have successful post-war political careers, with more than half going on to serve as either a governor or a U.S. senator. Probably the most prominent figure here was Roger Sherman from Connecticut. He had signed the Continental Association in 1774, the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and later in 1777 he signed the Articles of Confederation. Then, ten years later, he signed the U.S. Constitution, making him the only person to sign all four of these foundational documents. At the Constitutional Convention of 1787, he was also the leader of the Connecticut Compromise, which established the structure of Congress and made the Constitution acceptable to large and small states alike. One of the other Connecticut delegates, Samuel Huntington, had also signed the Declaration of Independence in the previous year. 
he would go on to serve several more terms in the Continental Congress, and during that time he signed the Articles of Confederation. He was also the president of the Continental Congress from 1779 to 1781, and was president when the Articles of Confederation first went into effect. He would later go on to serve as governor of Connecticut for 10 years, before his death in 1796. Another important figure here was Robert Treat Payne, one of the two delegates from Massachusetts. Like Roger Sherman, he signed both the Continental Association and the Declaration of Independence, and he would later go on to have a long career as the state attorney general and as a justice on the state's Supreme Judicial Court. His fellow Massachusetts delegate, Thomas Cushing, was an interesting choice. Like Payne, he had represented Massachusetts in both the First and the Second Continental Congresses, but he was opposed to the idea of independence. This had cost him his re-election to Congress in 1776, but it apparently didn't hurt his long-term political career. Not only did the state legislature select him to attend the Springfield Convention, but he would later go on to serve as the state's first lieutenant governor from 1780 to 1788, including a short three-month stint as acting governor. One of New Hampshire's two delegates, Josiah Bartlett, also signed the Declaration of Independence, and would later sign the Articles of Confederation. He later served as Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court, and was their governor from 1790 to 1794. The other delegate here at Springfield who had signed the Declaration of Independence was Stephen Hopkins, probably the most prominent figure in Revolutionary-era Rhode Island. He had served for many years as governor during the colonial era, as Rhode Island was one of only two colonies that had the right to elect their own governors. He also served at various times as Chief Justice of the Colonial Supreme Court, and was a delegate to both the First and the Second Continental Congresses. By the time he arrived in Springfield for the convention, his political career was mostly over because of his declining health. He presided over this convention, and later served a few more terms in the Rhode Island legislature, but otherwise he was basically retired from political service. Based on the proceedings of the convention, it does not seem like much business was conducted on July 31st, other than entering the credentials of the different state delegations into the official record. Then, the next day, Friday, August 1st, the proceedings only note that the delegates conferred on sundry subjects and adjourned to Saturday. It was at this next meeting, on Saturday, August 2nd, that the delegates really got down to business. The topic of the day was paper money, and they were all in agreement that there was far more state-issued paper currency in circulation than was necessary for the war effort, and that it had led to depreciation, price fluctuations, and could cause the currency to become worthless. They also unanimously expressed concerns about the fact that there were so many different authorities issuing paper money, including the individual states and the Continental Congress. They believed that this led to further depreciation as well as counterfeiting, which was difficult to detect in the situation. So, the delegates approved two resolutions relating to these issues. First, they recommended that the states redeem all non-interest-bearing currency that was valued at a dollar or more. They suggested that the states could do this through taxation, or by redeeming them for either interest-bearing treasurer notes or continental currency issued by the national government. Second, the delegates recommended that, going forward, the states used taxation as their primary means for funding the war, rather than paper currency. These taxes, the delegates believed, should be levied at least once every quarter. The next day was Sunday, but the delegates reconvened at 9 a.m. on Monday, August 4th. 
On this day, according to the proceedings, the committee took into consideration the acts against monopoly and oppression, and upon mature deliberation are of opinion that they are attended with inconveniences, and that the good ends proposed thereby may be better attained by the measures herein recommended. So, the delegates approved three resolutions that they believed would better accomplish the goals of the price control laws. First, the delegates recommended that the states repeal all laws that set limits on wages and prices. As part of this, though, they also acknowledged the potential harm that this could do to the soldiers who depended on these necessities in the army. So, in the second resolution of the day, the delegates recommended to the state legislatures that provision be immediately made for supplying the troops belonging to the Continental Army and raised in their respective states, who are in the field, with such necessary articles as are not supplied by the Commissary General, upon the same terms as the several states have stipulated. And the delegates also recommended that the state legislatures pass laws to allow the government to seize these items when necessary, and provide reasonable compensation to their owners. The third resolution encouraged the state legislatures to pass laws against hoarding, and to establish procedures for forcing the sale of hoarded goods. The delegates met again on Tuesday, but like on Friday, the proceedings for this day only note that they met according to the adjournment and conferred on sundry matters before adjourning. Wednesday, August 6, was the final day of the convention, and the delegates addressed several different topics. First, they discussed the question of whether states should prohibit the export of certain products to a different state. They acknowledged that it may sometimes be necessary to do so, but they issued recommendations to state legislatures on how to make these laws as narrowly tailored as possible, in order to prevent violations of property rights or excessive disruptions to interstate commerce. Second, the delegates agreed that their recommendations from this convention would be most effective if they were enacted nationwide, and not just in New England and New York. So, they voted to send their recommendations to the Continental Congress, that such measures may be taken for that end as they in their great wisdom shall think meet. Lastly, Rhode Island raised concerns about the need for soldiers to protect its coastline. The state was currently raising two battalions for its own defense, and Massachusetts agreed to send two more battalions of its own, with Connecticut agreeing to send one battalion of 728 men, and New Hampshire agreeing to send 300 men to Rhode Island. Then, Stephen Hopkins, the president of the convention, wrote a letter to John Hancock, president of the Continental Congress, to summarize the convention's recommendations. The letter, dated Springfield, August 6, 1777, reads, Sir, the committees from the several states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, in pursuance of the proposal of the state of Massachusetts Bay, have met and conferred upon several subjects therein recommended, and have passed a number of resolutions, a copy of which I am directed to be laid before the Honorable Congress for their consideration. The first four of these states last winter passed acts to prevent monopoly and oppression, in order to support the credit of their paper currency, but the other United States, not judging it expedient to enact similar laws, hath in a great measure prevented their answering the good purposes for which they were intended, and has rendered very difficult, if not impracticable, fully to execute the same. Other measures, therefore, have now been agreed upon for the same purposes, the success of which we apprehend will greatly depend upon the concurrence of the United States 
in the same. We are so fully impressed with the importance of drawing in and sinking the bills of credit emitted by the several states, and of the necessity of large and frequent taxations to supply the continental treasury and to defray the charges of government, that we have earnestly recommended it to the several states we respectively represent, and we apprehend it will be absolutely necessary for similar measures to be adopted by the other United States, in order to support the credit of the paper currency and to prevent any further emissions for the purposes of defraying the charges of the war and the support of internal government. We submit the whole to Honorable Congress that such measures may be taken for that end as they in their great wisdom shall think proper. I am, in behalf of the committee, sir, your most obedient and very humble servant, Stephen Hopkins. Aside from this letter, other delegates wrote their own individual letters to members of the Continental Congress. On August 18th, Roger Sherman wrote to William Williams, one of Connecticut's delegates in Congress. He told Williams, You have doubtless seen the result of the conference of the committees met at Springfield. I believe the measures recommended for supporting the credit of the paper currency, if adopted by all the states, will effectually conserve the end. I want to know the opinion of Congress upon it. If something is not immediately done, the currency will be worth nothing but it may be easily supported by sinking the bills of the particular states and taxing high and often to defray the expenses of the war. People in general are convinced of the necessity of it. Almost all dealing for common necessaries is carried on here by barter. A week later, Sherman wrote a similar letter to Samuel Adams, again urging higher taxes to pay for the war effort, while also urging confederation, or formal union of the states, in order to improve the nation's public credit. The problem, of course, was that the country was currently in the midst of a revolution that was sparked, in large part, because of taxes that were levied on them by a powerful central government. So, the idea of creating high taxes to fund this war was difficult for many people to accept. In the meantime, the Continental Congress was in the midst of drafting the Articles of Confederation, which would become the nation's first constitution. It was signed by Congress on November 15, 1777, creating a national government that was, by design, very weak. The individual state governments held most of the power, including, most significantly, the power to tax. Congress had no authority to tax, although it could request money from the states to fund the military. Although the Articles of Confederation would not be formally ratified by the states until 1781, this first such request to the states came just a week after Congress signed the Articles, and it was in response to the recommendations of the Springfield Convention. On September 10th, the Continental Congress had sent Stephen Hopkins' letter to a committee, which prepared a report relating to taxation, and presented it to Congress on November 22nd. Congress responded favorably to the idea of taxation, and emphasized the need for money to fund the war while also using particularly harsh and vivid language to describe those who had valued personal profit over patriotism. Let the virtuous patriots of America reflect on the inestimable value of the prize for which we are contending. Hitherto spared from taxes, let them now with a cheerful heart contribute according to their circumstances. Let the sordid wretches who shrink from danger and personal service 
and meanly prefer their own inglorious ease and emolument to the good of their country, be despised, and their ill-gotten wealth be abhorred as a disgrace. Let the extortioners and oppressors be punished, the secret traitor dragged to light, the necessities of the army attended to and relieved, and the quantity of money in circulation be reduced, and we shall soon see the public credit fully established, and with the continuance of the divine favor, a glorious termination of the present arduous conflict. To accomplish this, Congress laid out a plan of taxation, with each state expected to contribute a set amount based on population. In total, the goal was to raise $5 million to fund the war effort. In addition, Congress echoed the Springfield Convention's recommendation that the states should stop issuing their own paper money, and that they should redeem all paper money, with the exception of notes under a dollar. Congress approved several other resolutions, including one that called for more regional conventions the following year, including one in New Haven for the New England and Mid-Atlantic states, one in Fredericksburg for Virginia, Maryland, and North Carolina, and one in Charleston for South Carolina and Georgia. Of these three conventions, the New Haven one appears to have been the only one that actually met. Nonetheless, regional conventions such as these would continue to play an important role in governing the new country throughout the American Revolution. Future gatherings would be held in Hartford twice, Philadelphia, Boston, and Providence. And, like the Springfield Convention, these topics typically centered around the economic issues of the country. However, despite these various efforts to curb inflation and place the country on a sound financial footing, currency depreciation and a lack of hard money continued to be a problem throughout the rest of the war. Those who had paper money faced the options of either holding on to it in the hopes that someday the government would redeem it for face value, or selling it to speculators for whatever they could get, which often meant mere pennies on the dollar. No other Revolutionary-era conventions were held here in Springfield, but the issues of inflation, debts, and taxation would again draw people to Springfield a decade later in 1787. This time, however, it wasn't a handful of wealthy and prominent founding fathers gathering here to talk about economic theory. Instead, it was an army of several thousand disgruntled farmers and veterans, led by Daniel Shays, who were attempting to seize control of the federal arsenal. But that's a topic for another podcast episode. Overall, these regional founding-era conventions, such as the one in Springfield, have received surprisingly little attention from subsequent historians, compared to the more famous meetings of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. However, the delegates to these conventions were largely the same people who had previously represented their states in Congress, and the conventions typically worked closely with Congress to accomplish the same goals. Even in the local history of Springfield, the 1777 convention seems to have been essentially forgotten. I have studied Springfield's history for many years, and I only recently learned about it when I stumbled across a brief account of the convention in Mason Green's book, Springfield 1636-1886, History of Town and City. And even this was mostly just a summary of the published proceedings, without really adding any new information. Otherwise, I have not found anything about the convention in any other Springfield history books. Even Josiah Gilbert Holland's major two-volume History of Western Massachusetts, published in 1855, 
makes no mention of this important gathering of founding fathers in Springfield, despite an entire chapter dedicated to the region's involvement in the American Revolution. Because local history books are largely silent when it comes to the convention, one question that I have not been able to answer is where the delegates actually met. With only 11 delegates plus the clerk, they would not have needed a very large space, but if I had to guess, I would say that they probably met in the county courthouse, which was at the time located on the east side of Main Street, across from present-day Court Square, on the site of what is now the Mass Mutual Center. It was the only government building in the town at the time, and it would seem like a logical place to meet, especially since the clerk of the convention was also the county register of deeds. As for where the delegates stayed during their week in Springfield, this also seems uncertain. Some may have boarded in private homes, but there's a good chance that at least some of them would have stayed at Parsons Tavern, which was located on the site of Court Square. This was Springfield's leading tavern during the late 1700s, and it often catered to travelers heading to and from Boston. Among its prominent guests during this era was George Washington, who made a brief stop at the tavern in 1775 on his way to Cambridge to take command of the fledgling Continental Army. Many years later, under very different circumstances, he would spend a night at Parsons Tavern during his 1789 presidential tour of New England. Overall, while the Springfield Convention has been largely overlooked by both local and national historians, the legacy of these regional conventions has lived on in an obscure clause in the U.S. Constitution. Article 5 of the Constitution describes the process for proposing amendments, which can happen in one of two ways, either through a two-thirds majority vote in Congress, or through a convention of the states that is requested by at least two-thirds of the states. The second option reflects the role that conventions of the states, such as the Springfield one, played in the Revolutionary Era. So far, the Constitution has been amended 27 times, but all 27 of these have been proposed through Congress. There have been many calls over the years to hold a convention of the states to propose amendments, but so far none have ever reached the threshold of two-thirds of the states. More recently, political groups on both the left and the right have advocated for an Article V convention, as it is commonly called, in order to address particular issues. However, others have expressed concern about such a convention, especially since the Constitution is so vague about what it would be allowed to do. So, for now, the regional conventions of the American Revolution are a mostly forgotten part of history. But, they could once again become very relevant if an Article V convention ever occurred. These would be the closest thing to historical precedent, so it might very well lead to renewed scholarly interest and insight into these gatherings, including the Springfield Convention of 1777. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Western Mass History. For more information, check out our social media pages. You can follow Western Mass History on facebook.com slash westernmasshistory and on Instagram at westernmasshistory. And feel free to reach out if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. If you like this episode, you can also subscribe to future ones. Western Mass History is available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.